Welcome to Pius Library. We are grateful to Pius Library, to David Cassens, the director, for pulling this event together, for inviting Mr. Tom Allen to be with us. I'm Father Paul Stark of the Society of Jesus, the Vice President for Mission and Ministry at the University, and I won't do any of the heavy lifting. All I will do is moderate the panel. On our panel tonight, we have John Wade, who is an historian and the university archivist. And he'll be speaking about the exorcism, the story of the story. Second, we'll have Father John Padberg of the Society of Jesus, a noted historian and director of the Institute of Jesuit Sources. Father Padberg will be speaking about possessions and exorcisms, facts and fiction. And then we have Tom Allen, an historian and author of the book, Possessed, the true story of an exorcism. And it's a summary of the 1949 exorcism, the reason pretty much we're all here this evening. A few brief comments and a prayer, then we'll have the speakers, and then we'll have the final prayer to Michael the Archangel. One gets the impression that teaching about the existence of the devil as a real being, is not particularly popular in our time. Any number of authors in scripture and otherwise have noted that if the devil can convince us he does not exist, then the battle is already won, half of it. Therefore, St. Paul admonished us, put on all the armor that God has forged, that you may be able to make a stand against the devil's cunning tricks. Our wrestling is not against weak human nature, but against the principalities and the powers, against those that rule the world of darkness, the wicked spirits that belong to an order higher than ours. With all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you will be enabled to put out all the flaming arrows of the wicked enemy. And recently, according to Pope Francis, the presence of the devil is in the first page of the Bible. And the Bible ends with the presence of the devil, with God's victory over the devil. Do not confuse the truth. Jesus fought against the devil. Keep guard of our hearts, because the devil is cunning. He is never completely banished. Only on the last day will he be. Let us begin then in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who once and for all consigned that fallen and apostate tyrant to the flames of hell, who sent your only begotten Son into the world to crush that roaring lion, Hasten to our call for help and snatch from ruination and from the clutches of the noonday devil, this human being made up in your image and likeness. Strike terror, Lord, into the beast, now laying waste your vineyard. Fill your servants with courage to fight strongly against that reprobate dragon, lest he despise those who put their trust in you and say with Pharaoh of old, I know not God nor will I set Israel free. Let your mighty hand cast him out of your servants, so he may no longer hold captive those whom it pleased you to make in your image and to redeem through your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. And now I'd like to bring up John Wade, our historian and university archivist. Father Stark. Between Sunday, January the 15th, and Monday, April the 18th, 1949, a series of mysterious events befell a young man whom I shall simply call Robbie from a Maryland suburb of Washington, D.C. From January through March the 5th, these events occurred in or near Robbie's home in the Washington area. While from March the 6th through April the 18th, 
The activities took place here in St. Louis at several locations. I'm not here to answer for you definitively the question of the cause of Robbie's troubles. Was he possessed by the devil or some other evil spirit? Was he suffering from some serious psychological or physical disturbance? Or was Robbie making the entire thing up to get attention? I've seen evidence for what most people would consider reliable sources who would answer yes to all three of those questions. He was possessed, some say he was ill, others say he was making the whole thing up. My brief remarks today are simply intended to provide a little context for the presentation of our featured speaker, Mr. Tom Allen, and the remarks of our other distinguished guest, Father John Padberg. I shall begin by telling you how, I, how and why I first became interested in the exorcism story. Although I've certainly read a fair amount about the St. Louis exorcism, I can guarantee you it was never my life's intention to learn a great deal about the exorcism story. And as a bit of an aside, I was an undergraduate here at St. Louis U from 1969 to 73, and I lived in the dorm across the street. And at that time, Greece, the Griesdeck complex was all guys. And this is in, in 19, I graduated in 73, and I can tell you in those four years, if we talked about the exorcism more than one time, I would be surprised. We never talked about it. And it's, you know, and judge what you want, but for you know, a bunch of guys not to talk about it more than once is, 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 is very interesting. Since we're in an academic sit situation, and this is an academic panel, I'll start with a quote uh, from Plato, of all people. Uh, in the Republic, Plato says that necessity is the mother of invention. Well, it really was out of necessity that I became interested in the St. Louis exorcism story. I've worked for St. Louis U in Pius Library for more than 39 years. I know many of you probably think, he's not even 39 years old, but I've been here, I've been here 39 years. I've served as university archivist for more than 24 of those years. And probably the most frequently asked question, not probably the most, certainly the most frequently asked question we receive in the archives is for information about the St. Louis exorcism. The questions which seem to occur more frequently the closer we are to Halloween usually go something like this. Did it really happen in DeBerg Hall? Didn't something happen in Verhagen Hall? Why is that room locked up and boarded up in Verhagen? I know you have the secret exorcism file. Why won't you let me look at it? You know the young man's real name and how I can get in contact with him. Why won't you tell me? Well, what we finally did in the archives was to make a photocopy of every article, announcement, webpage, book reference, whatever, to the St. Louis exorcism and place them in two binders. And whenever we're asked about the exorcism, we simply give the patrons the two binders along with a copy of Mr. Tom Allen's book, and, 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 and that's it. And here, here, are, here are the two binders, and here's, here's a copy of both editions of Mr. Allen's book, and he'll talk more about that in a minute. As far as the important figures in this incredible story, obviously the main principle is the young man who suffered from the possession. For the purposes of my remarks today, I'll refer to him, and that's all I always do, is refer, him, refer to him as Robbie. This was the name given to him by Tom Allen in his book, Possessed, and I certainly feel more comfortable just calling him Robbie. Uh, and as I mentioned, you'll hear more from, from Tom in a few minutes. At the time the unusual events began in January 1949, Robbie was a 13-year-old boy living in a Maryland suburb of Washington. The other major figure in the case was the exorcist priest, Father William S. Bowdern, S.J., Father Bowdern, who was 52 years old at the time when he first met Robbie, was pastor of St. Francis Xavier College Church. He had been principal of St. Louis U High here in St. Louis, president of Campion Jesuit High School in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, and he had been a chaplain in the Army during World War II. Father Bowdern's primary assistant for the exorcism was Father Raymond Bishop. Father Bishop was the chair of St. Louis U's Department of Education, and it was Father Bishop who maintained a detailed diary of the events of the exorcism for Father Bowdern and for himself. Several copies of the diary were made, and it's Father Bishop's diary, which has been the primary source for much of the more contemporary research into the exorcism. And again, Tom will talk more about that later on. A few years after the exorcism, Father Bishop moved to Creighton University, where he was on the faculty for more than 20 years. 
Father Bowdern and Father Bishop early on asked for the assistance of a young Jesuit scholastic by the name of Mr. Walter J. Halloran. Halloran had been a student at Campion High School where Father Bowdern was president. And I, I thought he was a football player. Tom, you thought maybe he was a baseball player, but he was an athlete of some kind at, at, at Campion Jesuit. Uh, anyhow, after, after eventually Mr. Halloran would be ordained as Father Halloran, he would go on to teach at Campion at Marquette University at St. Louis U High, and he worked here at St. Louis U in both campus ministry and alumni relations. And it's interesting that Father Halloran earned two bronze stars as a chaplain during the Vietnam War. There were several other Jesuits who assisted with the exorcism at one time or another, including Father William Van Roo, Father John O'Flaherty, and Father Joe Boland. And I knew Father Boland a little bit, and I can tell you he never said anything about, about the exorcism. Now a little bit about the story of the story, a historiography of the exorcism. As you might imagine, there have been literally dozens of versions of what really happened. We know what really happened, so we're going to tell you. There are now so many true accounts of what happened to Robbie that it's difficult, if not impossible, uh, to tell the who, the, the who, what, where, when, and how of what actually happened. Robbie and his family returned home to Maryland about two weeks after the exorcism. Robbie wrote Father Bowden a letter and told him that he was doing very well. A formal report on the events of the exorcism and Father Bishop's diary was filed with the Archbishop, Archbishop Ritter of St. Louis. Since the rite of exorcism was performed here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, Father Bowdern had sought and had received permission from Archbishop Ritter to conduct the exorcism. There is evidence that another copy of the report in the diary was filed with the Missouri Province of the Society of Jesus. Archbishop Ritter followed church procedure and asked that an examination or an examiner formally investigate the exorcism case. This examination was conducted and a report was given to the Archbishop. From the perspective of the Archdiocese, the Missouri Province, and Father Bowdern, the case was closed and they were forbidden to talk about it publicly. They did this not because they were necessarily trying to hide anything, but simply because both the Archdiocese and the Jesuits believed it served no useful purpose to keep retelling the same story over and over again, and they did not want Robbie's identity known. And again, I think you have to remember, this is 1949. It's not 2013 where there's you know, text messaging and instant messaging and 24-hour news and all that. There does not seem to be any reporting of the exorcism until later in the summer of 1949. Early in the series of events that occurred in Maryland, Robbie was visited by the Reverend Luther Miles Schultz, a, a, a Lutheran minister from a church near Robbie's home. In August of 49, Reverend Schultz, who had an interest in the in the paranormal, told a Washington meeting of a group of parapsychologists that he had witnessed what he called poltergeist phenomena at Robbie's home. He did not give the exact name or address of the boy, but he did say that Robbie was later taken to a city in the Midwest. And we all know the real city in the Midwest is St. Louis, not that imposter Chicago. So anyway, <laughs> as, as one can imagine, Reports of Schultz's remarks quickly found their way to several Washington newspapers, including the Washington Post. Officials of the Archdiocese of Washington were contacted for information, but the Archdiocese wouldn't provide very much. A small three-paragraph story did appear in the Catholic Review, which was a national semi-official Catholic newspaper. And it should be noted here that one of the readers of the Washington Post article in 1949 was an undergraduate English major at another fine Jesuit university in Washington, Georgetown University, and this English major's name was William Peter Blatty. It was Mr. Blatty who would use this article about the exorcism as the basis for his novel, The Exorcist, which first appeared in 1971. In the novel, the story is set in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., as opposed to St. Louis. Blatty changed the possessed person from a young boy to a 12-year-old girl, played by Linda Blair in the movie, we'll get to that in a minute. And although the priests involved in the exorcism in the book are Jesuits, they are associated with Georgetown and not St. Lejeune. Blatty did have communication with Father Bowdern about the exorcism, but Bowdern evidently did not provide him with many details. Bowdern, Father Bowdern did tell Blatty that he sincerely believed that Robbie was possessed by demonic spirits. Blatty does claim that he had access to, to Father Bishop's diary 
but he doesn't indicate exactly how. Two years after Blatty's book, on December the 26th, 1973, which makes this 2013 the 40th anniversary of the release of the Hollywood movie, The Exorcist. The movie was directed by Bill Friedkin, was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture. As one might imagine, uh, after the movie version of The Exorcist appeared, interest in the topic of exorcisms grew. More importantly for our story, once the general public knew about the 1949 St. Louis exorcism, more and more people were curious to learn about what really happened here. Since the 1973 release, two sequels and one prequel to The Exorcist have been made. Exorcist II, The Heretic, appeared in 1977, while Exorcist III came out in 1990. And the prequel, Exorcist, The Beginning, was released in 2004. And there have been a several home movie versions about the exorcism, uh, including Exorcists and In the Grip of Evil. In 1993, the most reliable and even-handed account of the events of the 1949 exorcism appeared with the publication of Mr. Allen's book, Possessed, The True Story of an Exorcism. What makes Mr. Allen's book uh, so special and sets it apart is that he was able to speak extensively with Father Walter Halloran, who, as I mentioned, assisted Father Bowden and Father Bishop. And he was given a copy of Father Bishop's diary uh, of the events of the exorcism. Mr. Allen's own interest in the exorcism was, was piqued by another article in the Washington Post in which they discussed Father Halloran had uh, been interviewed about his involvement in the exorcism. Since his 1993 edition, Allen has published a second edition in 2000. And the major edition in this book was the transcript of Father Bishop's diary. Since the first edition of Possessed was published, numerous other books and now websites about the exorcism have appeared. The interest in the exorcism story and in creating many, many different versions of this story continues to grow. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. We'll have some time at the end for questions and answers as well. Now I'd like to introduce Father John Padberg of the Society of Jesus, director of the Institute of Jesuit Sources, who will speak about possessions and exorcisms, facts and fiction. Father Padberg. It's a cliche, I know, but as a matter of fact, it was a dark and stormy night, a November night years ago, when on the left bank of Paris in a Jesuit house, I laid myself down to sleep in the bed of an exorcist whose corpse had been removed from the room just a few hours earlier in the day. I was not out to seek thrills, and I assure you, nothing happened that night. But it's a good beginning anyway. <laughs> the man whose room I took and who had just died that morning, I was living at a Jesuit house in the outskirts of Paris doing research work and had to come into the city to go to various archives and libraries. And when I did, I'd stay at one of the other Jesuit houses. This particular day, they said, when I called, well, we don't have any extra rooms today. Uh, well, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, sort of, uh, except uh, for Father de Tonkadec's room. I said, oh, well, you know who he was. I said, oh, yes, I do. Well, you doesn't bother you? No, I said, doesn't bother me at all. Father de Tonkadec, Joseph de Tonkadec, 1868 to 1962, was for 37 years the official exorcist of the Archdiocese of Paris from 1925 until 1962, which is when he died. He was a philosopher, a cultural critique, did a series of articles at various times on very famous French philosophers and people such as Maurice Blondel, Henri Bergson, the 
poet, Paul Claudel, wrote a very interesting book way, way back in 1938, English translation, the, uh, Nervous or Mental Illness and Diabolic Manifestations. He had hundreds and hundreds of clients through those 37 years. Uh, as you may know, some of you, the, uh, often enough at the time, one did not make an appointment at a specific time when one went to see a doctor, for example. It was just on reçoit, one receives between the hours of one and five, and whoever showed up in sequential order would come, therefore, to see the doctor, or in this case, to see Father de Tonkadec. His uh, office waiting room was, from all accounts, I didn't see it, was a sight to behold. But out of the hundreds, possibly thousands of clients over those years, week after week, he reputedly, and I think this is more than just repute, reputed to say that in all of these cases over all of these years, there were perhaps two real cases of diabolic possession that might be the subject for exorcisms. Uh, that throws a little cold water on what some of us may wonder about what's happening. I don't know whether there were or were not, but I thought I ought to begin at least with that story from a very reputable, careful scholar. If we talk about exorcism, uh, we're talking about effectively within the tradition of Christianity, and not just Roman Catholicism, the act of driving out or driving away an evil spirit, I'm not going to say what kind yet at the moment, by adjuration, that is, by solemnly charging or commanding this devil or demon or evil spirit to leave the individual that that spirit is involved with. And that adjuration or exorcism is especially by use and repeated use of a holy name or a major liturgical rite that obviously, if you're going to have an exorcism, implies that there is something or someone to be exercised. You heard the tenor of one of those prayers from the old ritual of exorcism that we just had at the beginning from Father Stark. That is from the old Rituale Romanum, or the rite of exorcism. This personal or evil or supreme spirit of unrighteousness shows up certainly in Jewish and certainly in Christian theology. There is no question that there is, those terms are used of some kind of an entity that is malevolent and perhaps malevolent by nature. Uh, a tempter, a spiritual enemy of mankind, an adversary of God, all of those terms are used. But in every instance, and no matter how long this phenomenon occurs, it is clear that this entity, whatever it is, is subordinate to God and, strange though it may seem, to put it this way, is able to act only by God's sufferance, that is by God's, some kind of God's permission, if you have to use, as we have to use, simply human words to express something about the work of the deity or divinity. Um, who was this um, demon or devil? We'll get to that in a few moments. But to clear the air, to begin, not to begin with, but to get to this, does Christianity officially teach that there is such a being, a malevolent spirit? Unquestionably, it does. And there is a long, long story of the development of the idea or doctrine of evil, of the evil spirit, of the fall of the angels, etc., etc. Unquestionably, it does. And as I say, not only Roman Catholicism, uh, especially at the present time, a fair number of people in evangelical or fundamental Christianity, 
evangelical Protestantism are very strong and public about exorcisms and the devil, and to my mind, somewhat too free and easy about how free and easy it is to perform this right and achieve some results. Does Christianity officially teach that the devil has acted on any specific identifiable person? No. Does Christianity teach that the devil has officially acted in any specific identifiable circumstance? No. Does Christianity teach any specific identifiable physical attributes of this entity? No. Have people embroidered on what those specific attributes might be? Of course they have, and that's perfectly understandable. Well then why, in some ways, does Christianity teach this? Because even if often enough it is figurative language that is used in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament, uh, nonetheless the language is there, and the activities of the prophets especially, and of Jesus himself, are there in Scripture itself, from which we get the first and foremost source of God's revelation. Strictly speaking, this particular, or this entity that is to be exercised, there is only one devil, really, within Christianity. Only one Satan, Satan, the adversary. Sometimes the devil is used as a plural for what more properly would be called demons, or demon. The devil is meant to be this supreme adversary, as it is portrayed in scripture, the supreme adversary of God who in some sense fell from grace, and therefore is, by God's sufferance, possibly available there to tempt us, if not necessarily by physically taking over parts of ourselves, is there nonetheless to tempt us. The demons in the, demon in the Bible from originally the Greek, especially for the New Testament, daimon, daimonos, means an evil spirit. Originally it meant some kind of a semi-divine being. Socrates would talk about having a daimon, a spirit that helped him to be who he was and to do what he did and to understand what he understood. Late in the Old Testament, Quite, quite late in the Old Testament, these demons grew in importance in the frequency with which they appeared in the text and the activities that were imputed to them. And a large amount of Jewish speculation followed, apart from scripture itself, on what these entities were like, what they did, where they came from, how they acted, upon whom they acted. Increasingly, it was from that speculation that most people, and within a lot of Christianity, Christian teaching, would talk about these demons as fallen angels. That shows up very regularly then, later within Christian theological teaching too. In the New Testament, it's perfectly clear that Jesus exorcised what he called evil spirits. Um, what was that exorcism about? What did it mean? Were there specific evil spirits, entities, other than what we would regard as human beings, uh, that Jesus exorcised? Certainly the statements are made that they are there, and that they, those are the fundamental statements from which a huge speculative theology has been elaborated over the centuries. And most people are a lot more interested in that speculative theology, uh, witness the crowd here, than if we had this afternoon a, a, a session on the speculative theology of the Trinity. I'll bet there wouldn't be one-tenth of these people here. <laughs> Yet the most fundamental doctrine within all of Christianity, revealed Christianity, is the Trinity. 
is everything that we believe about God, specifically and far, let's take Roman Catholicism for the moment here, is everything that we believe about God specifically and formally and infallibly defined in nice, clear statements? You think so? There's one, certainly one fundamental doctrine within Christianity that has never been formally, specifically defined in any one of the councils of the church or by papal infallibility. And yet all of our faith depends on this particular one. Think for a moment what you think it might be. God is good. God is good. The whole of Christianity rests in some sense on that. If you don't believe that this entity that we call God, this supreme being who holds us, who brings us into existence and holds us and the whole of created reality in God's hands moment by moment, century by century, eon by eon, if you believe that that's a malevolent spirit, what in heaven's name are you doing here and why do you bother try, presuming that you do try to be good and decent people? You'd be pleasing a, an evil spirit. You believe implicitly that God is good. There are all kinds of things we believe that are part and parcel of our faith that, that are drawn from, deduced from, uh, logically sometimes, and in some ways put into practice simply by the way we live and act the things we see, the songs, the hymns we sing, the pictures we see, the stained glass windows in the churches that we go to. Most of our faith through the centuries until the invention of printing was taught verbally, orally, not in printing, and often enough only fairly late in, in visible physical realities. In the New Testament with Christ's power to overcome physical powers that demons supposedly could have had, as Jesus, for example, drives demons out of the Gerasene swine, um, is that fundamentally, mostly, most importantly, symbolic of Jesus' supremacy over both spiritual and physical evil, and is it especially symbolic of his conquest of spiritual evil and establishment of the kingdom of God? More than anything else, what Jesus is trying to tell us, this kingdom of God is to, that is to come is, as one of the prefaces, the Feast of Christ the King, a kingdom of justice and peace, of love and mercy and compassion. And it's that establishment of that kingdom that depends upon a good God and God's coming to us incarnate in Jesus Christ that the whole of our faith is ultimately about. All you have to do is look at scripture, Matthew 12, 28, Mark 3, 22, Luke 11, 20, Mark 5, 12 to 18, etc., 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 to see that Jesus does talk about demons and does talk about driving out demons. Most of us live much of our lives uh, surrounded, but we all do, surrounded by physical realities, things we can see and touch and taste and feel and so on. Representations of things. Interestingly, the representations of a demon in Christian art, that is to say paintings, not so much the little gargoyles that sit, you know, on top of the rain spouts in Gothic cathedrals, but paintings in Christian art only began at the end of the 11th and at the beginning of the 12th century. That's a long time for the faith to exist without it necessarily being nourished by physical portrayals of the demons. After that, they multiplied, and there are all kinds of, you can, you can see in all kinds of places, and especially when the Black Death came along in the 15th century, then is when the multiplication of those kinds of portrayals, physical portrayals of almost incarnate evil took place. Oh, something else that will surprise especially Catholics. Uh, when did crucifixes begin to be common? The cross was used right from the beginning of our faith as a symbol of God's victory over evil. But the body of Jesus on the cross, as far as I know, there is no representation of that 
until about the year 400, anywhere, anywhere in Christianity. But it's gradually that we see what these physical symbols are that represent for us good or evil. Now, if there is such a thing as diabolic involvement with a human being, you have either two things, two, two kinds especially, and it shows up certainly in the book itself and with Robbie. Diabolic obsession is the hostile acts of the devil or evil spirits uh, besetting a person from the outside. Things fly, flying across the wall, across a room, uh, beds shaking up and down, uh, windows flying open, crucifixes being hurled across the room with no one touching them. Technically, that's diabolic obsession. Diabolic possession is the state of a person whose body, note the word body, whose body has fallen under the control of this outside entity that we call the devil or the demon. It is certainly constant Catholic Christian theology that the soul of a person possessed, if that person is really possessed, the soul cannot be entered into by the devil. All kinds of ways in which the body supposedly can be entered into, and the examples, for example, from the book itself would, would make that clear. I could go on and on, and you don't want to hear more from me, you want to hear more from somebody else. The most interesting, and I will only mention one last thing, the most interesting, in some ways, case of possession within, within uh, Catholic spirituality, and especially Jesuit spirituality, uh, Catholic Jesuit spirituality is part of Catholic spirituality, in case you have your doubts, um, is the case of Father Jean-Joseph Surin, S-U-R-I-N, 1600 to 1665. He was called much against his desire to do it, but his provincial asked him to undertake the exorcism of a convent of Ursuline nuns in the little French town of Loudun, L-O-U-D-U-N. Aldous Huxley wrote a famous, famous book called The Devils of Loudun, which was made later into a movie also. Well, you may think of that if you wish. He, was, they, he came to Loudun in 1634 to exercise this convent where the nuns were undergoing, let us say, the, the strange, let's just leave it at the strangest of physical phenomena, and apparently a good number of those physical phenomena were blasphemies against various articles of the faith, especially the Eucharist. He was getting nowhere with the exorcism for some time, and then contrary to all the rules, if you want to call them that, uh, he said, he prayed to God and said he would be willing to take onto himself that possession by the devil if God would release the nuns from that particular possession. Whatever happened, and there have been huge speculations from parapsychology to psychoanalysis to everything else, whatever happened for the next 20 years, from about 1635 to 55, uh, he was almost paralyzed in just about every way. Sometimes he couldn't speak at all for a year or two. Sometimes he could hardly move his limbs. Other times he was perfectly okay. Most of the time he was firmly convinced, he really was convinced that he was possessed by the devil. Was he? Was this a manic, depressive breakdown, breakdown of extraordinary kind? Who knows? But he was certainly convinced that the interior law of charity and love the interior law of God's charity and love would finally prevail. All of a sudden, in 1635, after those 20 years or so, uh, he, he, 1635 to 1655, he came out of it. He attributed to his prayers and the prayers of his brethren. He came out of it the next 10 years, was perfectly normal, and is one of the great examples of French Jesuit spirituality, Catholic spirituality, one of the great writers of the great century of French spirituality. So, at the end of all of this, 
Was Robbie possessed? I don't know. What I am certain of, if I'm a Christian at all, and no matter what my interest in the devil, the fundamental thing we believe as Christians is that we, and all Christians, all peoples, as Pope Francis said, to use the term from St. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, we have been rescued from the power of darkness by Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Father Padberg. And now I'm happy to introduce Mr. Thomas Allen, as I said earlier, an historian and the author of the book Possessed, the true story of an exorcism. Mr. Allen. Thank you for the privilege of coming to speak here today. It's been a long time since I showed my homework to a Jesuit. Uh, and so some old feelings are coming back. Um, I'm glad to see so many people are interested in what it is I hope I'm going to be able to say. This all started on a day I happened to be reading the Washington Post. There was a one-paragraph story reporting that a priest had taken part in an exorcism that had been portrayed in the movie. Until that time, I don't think it was generally known that there had been an actual a factual basis for the movie. Uh, the person who uh, gave the interview in Omaha, Nebraska, was Father Walter Halloran. He was there at Crichton University in Omaha. By the time I read about the interview, he was no longer at Crichton. I tracked him down through a helpful long-distance operator. I finally found him. And I introduced myself on the phone as a freelance writer. Told him I was interested in uh, the exorcism. Uh, made sure to mention that I was a Jebby boy. And then it dawned on me. I had reached him on Halloween. We had a laugh over that. We talked a little more, and he told me he had a diary about the exorcism. He said he'd mail me a copy. It was as simple as that. A few days later, I received a package from Father Halloran, and there were the words, Satan, diabolical, a coat on his hanger flew across the room. I was reading the words of one of 14 witnesses, including nine Jesuits, who would, quote, testify and verify phenomena, unquote, about the exorcism. This was, I realized, the most thorough and most reliable de 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 depiction of a modern exorcism that had ever been written. Father Halloran and I met several times and we became friends. He was a warm, funny man who had no pretense. He was what the Irish call a solid man. He was absolutely real, sure of who he was, and for me, it all added up somehow, when at the end of Mass, he did not merely say, go in peace. Father Halloran said, go in peace and justice. I have always, we, we would talk about the exorcism a lot, but he talked much more about the boy and not about the right. Uh, he gave me the image of a, a scared, confused 14-year-old boy who was caught up in something he didn't understand. And that's the way that Father Bowdern saw it, according to Father Howard, that this was a kid in trouble. And if they had a system to maybe get him out of that terrible predicament that he was in, then they would go and use it. So it really wasn't a religious origin of this. It was a humane and human origin. I have always shielded Robbie's identity, and I call him Robbie. He lived with his mother and father and maternal grandmother in a home in Maryland, not far from Washington, D.C. Robbie's aunt, I call her Harriet, lived in St. Louis, 
but she was a frequent visitor to their Maryland home. She, she doted on Robbie and introduced him to the Ouija board, which as a devout believer in spiritualism, she thought that the Ouija board was a conduit to be able to talk to the dead. On January 15, 1949, strange things began happening in Robbie's home. Dripping sounds seemed to originate from the sloping ceiling in the grandmother's bedroom. As I listened to sounds of dripping water, a painting of Christ hanging on the wall uh, began to shake as if someone was bounding the wall behind the painting. Then came the sounds of scratching, as if claws were being scraped across the wood inside the wall. This went on for several nights. Robbie's father called an exterminator who found no sign of rats or mice. Eleven days after all this began, Aunt Harriet died in St. Louis. Robbie's parents seemed to have linked her death to what was going on in their home, but I was never able to find out why they made that link. But they had some association between her death, perhaps in the Ouija board, and Robbie's strange behavior. They decided to ask for help. They were both Lutheran. They went to a Lutheran minister, as John mentioned, the Reverend Luther Miles Schultz. He is the first link in a chain of events that passed from him to a psychiatrist, to a Maryland priest, and then to the Jesuits of St. Louis University. Schultz happened to be keenly interested in parapsychology, the study of the paranormal. The chief practitioner of the paranormal at that time was Dr. J.B. Ryan at Duke University. In a letter to Ryan, Schultz says he believed that the boy was being disturbed by a poltergeist, a German word for noisy ghost. On February 17th, Robbie spent the night in Schultz's home. A heavy chair fell over, the bed Rami was in began shaking, and Schultz decided to make a bed for the boy on the floor using a sheet and a couple of blankets. The boy went on to that, fell asleep, and then, to Schultz's later recounts, the bed, the makeshift bed, slid under a real bed, and Robbie started bouncing, his face hitting the springs that were holding up the mattress. Schultz stooped and saw him bouncing up and down, and he was seemed to be in a trance. His body was stiff, and he, when Schultz pulled him out, uh, his, body, his face was cut in several places by the springs, but he hadn't shown any indication of pain. Schultz sent the family to the local mental hygiene clinic, where Robbie was twice examined. I found the name of the psychiatrist. Interesting enough, later on in her career, she becomes a specialist in troubled children. But I couldn't find any record of her uh, examination of Robbie. And they, it, I did find out they don't show up for the third appointment. By then, the, the words are starting to appear on Robbie's body. And one of them was L-O-U-I-S. Uh, it was in blood on Robbie's chest. When the mother asked, do you mean St. Louis, the word Y, the word yes, well, Y-E-S appears. Schultz and his doctor, meanwhile, he calls in his own physician, examine the boy. And they don't see any words, he says. But they did see, quote, nervous reaction rashes which had the appearance of scratches. He says, don't go to St. Louis. Stay here and try to find out if there's something else that could be done. He suggests that they consult a Roman Catholic priest. Supposedly, he said, go see a priest. Catholics know about this. <laughs> uh, it's not entirely... There is a theological basis for what he said because... When, when Luther establishes what will become Lutherism and, in fact, Protestantism, one of the things that's sort of left the side of the road is the concept of exorcism. 
So they called on Father E. Albert Hughes at St. James Church, which was near their home. Father Hughes briefly interviewed the father, the mother, and Robbie. And he sent the family home with some candles and a bottle of holy water. The next morning, Robbie's mother phoned Hughes in panic. She said something had smashed the holy water bottle, and the candles had turned into torches that had scorched the ceiling. While she was talking, Father Hughes heard a loud crash. Historically, she said the table for the telephone had just smashed into a hundred pieces. I got this from an account that Father Hughes, curiously enough, left to a group of Jesuits at Georgetown University in 1950. It was the year after the exorcism took place. And the details I, I just gave you came from his account as recorded by, thank God there was an archivist around, uh, by the archivist of, of Georgetown University. Later on, uh, they, they discussed it a little bit, and I talked to a theologian who had uh, recalled the meeting, and Hughes tells this story, and he's reading from what appears to be the report that had been made by the Archdiocese of, of Washington uh, at the time. That document has never been revealed. Anyway, he, he arranges, Father Hughes, gets permission from the Archbishop of Washington at, following the procedure to perform an, an, an exorcism. Um, sometime between February 27th and March 4th, Robbie's admitted to Georgetown under an assumed name. The boy was so violent that Father Hughes ordered him strapped to the bed. 